Hey everybody, just a quick note before the show. I'm gonna be giving a reading with Alexis Sears uh, this coming week, April 5th in Baltimore, Maryland at Johns Hopkins University in Gilman 50. I think it's a big room in Gilman. It's a Johns Hopkins, there'll be some signs up. Uh, send me a note if you might be in town. I will be giving out some sweet Slee Ricketts stickers. And, and it, it should be a good a good reading. We will do our best to make it not be a, a shitty poetry reading. And it will be under an hour. If nothing else, it will be under an hour. All right, so that's in, in uh, Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, uh, Tuesday, April 5th, this coming week. I hope to see some of you there. If you, I don't know if any of you live in fucking Baltimore, but we, we shall find out. All right, let's get to the show now. Several years ago, there was an article published in the Cut uh, section of New York Magazine. Or maybe it's just an online section. I don't know. I've never seen a physical copy of New York Magazine. Anyway, there's this, this article that got a lot of attention uh, called Benching is the New Ghosting by Jason Chen. And he, he describes in here this, this particular type of uh, modern dating behavior whereby, uh, as he says, the texts would arrive every few weeks and rarely deviated from a pattern, a link to an onion story, a housewife's gif, or a simple, hey, how are you? T and I had gone on maybe three dates, but we were still exchanging the occasional text months after the last time we saw each other. What is this even about? I'd complained to my friends. It'd be one thing if we were occasionally hanging out or even becoming fuck buddies, but that never happened. Instead, we were engaged in this bizarre textual limbo. He'd suggest dates, but plans would magically fall through. I'd invite him over, but his phone always died, OMG, so sorry. Every time I was ready to dismiss him, though, he'd find some way to make his presence known. He'd double-tap weeks-old Instagram posts or ask me to have lunch in Greenpoint in half an hour, which is the grossest non-starter of an invitation if I've ever heard one. The texts themselves would invariably be punctuated by baffling kissy face and see-no-evil-monkey emoji, the universal language of flirtation. So, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't know what the, the, I don't know what Greenpoint is, I don't understand half of the texting stuff, but what I do understand is this is what is uh, this is what's what's you know what used to be called stringing someone along or leading someone on, and uh, it is uh, it is it is in contemporary dating jargon called benching after the practice of a. Uh, um, of uh, athletic coaches who would take a player who was pretty good but not quite starting material and keep him keep him on the bench just in case just in case some just in case something came up um chen quotes an avowed bencher later in the article saying you just want to keep your options open i'm currently dating three different guys and maybe one or two of them i don't really want to pursue but i haven't formally broken up with them because why close that door if you don't have to so I thought of this article again the other day because my wife and I were commiserating about rejections. Uh, she had received a number of sort of irritating uh, rejections recently. I I have not been receiving rejections recently solely because I don't have anything out right now at magazines. But, you know, ordinarily, uh, rejections are the status quo. Uh, that is that's that is the the that is the the standard expectation that you have if you are 
uh, a writer of poetry, a writer, really a writer of, of, of any description, but particularly a writer of uh, some some silly literary genre that is um, that doesn't really pull its weight financially. Uh, Richard Wilbur being maybe the one exception because I, I remember hearing that he he somehow never received a rejection in his life, which is uh, sort of sickening, but uh, somehow believable in his case. Anyway, uh, Joanna was was making a particular kind of complaint, and in order to understand what her complaint was, you have to understand that there are two different kinds of rejections. There is the standard form rejection usually goes something like dear x the why you submitted was not quite right for our magazine but we wish you luck in placing it elsewhere sincerely yours z the uh this is a you know this is called a form rejection because obviously it uh it it is a it is the same for everybody. Sometimes, you know, in the case of uh, physical rejection, mostly this is done by email now. But in the case of physical, uh, you know, f physical correspondence, this would this would be literally a xeroxed slip of paper. They would print off. You'd stand, you know, typically print off, uh, you know, five or six of these on a sheet of paper and just cut them into uh, slices and uh, you know stick one in an envelope and call it good. With uh, with email, you just literally copy paste and then adjust the the relevant names. So that's the main kind of rejection you see. There's another kind, which is the encouraging rejection. That is, uh, dear X, uh, though your submitted Y is not quite right for our magazine, we hope that you will consider sending us more work in the future. Sincerely yours, Z. So the, the, the significant distinction here is that while the form rejection is uh, is merely polite, usually in some cases they are actually you know obnoxious, but but for the most part they're sort of bland and polite. Uh, the 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 encouraging rejection is specifically encouraging. It says please do send us more work in the future. Now there are in addition to these two basic kinds. Sometimes there are. Uh, there are you know personal touches that editors can add. You could get a, a specific detailed note, or even just a little uh, a, a little uh, you know slight personalization, a little line or two, uh, identifying that this is you know that, that's that's written specifically for you and not just copy pasted. Because of course the tiered rejection is also a form rejection. It's just uh, a slightly better kind that you send out to fewer people. Theoretically, though, though there are some magazines that only send out tiered, tiered rejections, which I, I actually think is, is deeply unethical, especially, especially if you charge money for submissions, which is a whole, really a whole other question for another time. But if you charge money for submissions and all of your form rejections are encouraging, then you really are going to hell. Uh, so what Joanna's, what Joanna was complaining about specifically though, was receiving tiered rejections from the same magazine, sometimes even personalized tiered rejections, over and over and over again without ever getting something in. That is the same magazine would effectively be saying, uh, we liked this, but just not quite enough. 
please keep sending us more of your work. Please, please send us the next thing that you write. We do want to keep seeing new work from you. We're just not going to publish this new work. But, uh, but we, but it seems likely that if you kept sending work to us, we would eventually uh, publish some of it. So, what occurred to me when she was complaining about this the other day is that this is benching. This is the same practice that Jason Chen was complaining about, whereby somebody who uh, is not really interested in sleeping with you, or at least not dating you consistently, uh, doesn't quite want to bite the bullet and uh, break up with you, doesn't really want to cut off contact, as as the, the, uh, the, the quoted bencher put it, uh, why close that door if you don't have to? So instead, they offer a sort of a a trickle of uh, vague, low-stakes encouragement. An emoji here, a gif there, a half-hearted invitation uh, every once in a while. This is what these magazines are doing. If you send out, you know, I would say more than two. Yeah, if you send out more than two encouraging rejections to the same writer, then without publishing something, then you really are at a crossroads. And, and what I what occurred to me is that we need to, I think we need to introduce a third type of rejection letter, right? If the main type of rejection letter is a, a form letter, a polite but neutral letter that says simply, this is not right for us, and then, and this is, we wish you luck placing it elsewhere, which is, which is sort of bullshit, which is sort of a non, I mean, I, I have put that in my own form rejection letters, but, but that sort of means nothing. It's really just a way to close out the rejection uh, so that it doesn't feel too curt. But if that's, if that's the main kind of rejection letter, and then the, the second kind is the encouraging rejection letter, please think of us in the future. Please consider sending more work. We would love to see something else from you. We don't want to close that door yet. Then I think it's really time we introduce a third kind of rejection letter. The final rejection letter. That is, or, 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 uh, or the breakup rejection letter. And this, this is really only for certain circumstances. If you as an editor have sent out, uh, say you've sent out three encouraging rejections. The, 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 the writer submitted something. You thought, good, but not great. I sent us something else. The writer sent you another thing. Good, but not great. Send us something else. The writer sent you another thing. Good, but not great. And he sends you yet a, a, yet a fourth work. Right? Yet a fourth piece of writing. I mean, that may be too much. Maybe we should do it on the third go. But, but at, at the very least, after two or three encouraging rejections, you really should have to make a choice. If you are not going to submit that, if you're not going to publish that next work, which has no guarantee of being better than the previous, you know, three or two or three, but if you're not going to publish that one, then I think it is time that you break up. Now, again, this is especially true if you charge money for submissions, because if you are encouraging someone to submit, you are saying it is worth your while to spend the $3 to send us more poems because there is a very good chance that we are going to publish the next thing you send. That's what you are saying. 
Even if you don't charge money, you're still saying it is worth it to you to get your hopes up, to do the work, to 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 craft the 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 story, to uh, you know to to fine tune the submit the cover letter, to uh, you know to to get your timing right, to pay attention to our submission windows, and to send work, and then hold your breath waiting for the long promised acceptance. It's worth it to you to do that. Even though, in all likelihood, we're still going to reject the next thing you send out. Now, if you're an editor, you might say, hey, most things are not good enough. Most things, most work that's good, that you get sent out has, has very little chance of getting accepted. True, 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 true. And so if all you send out, if you are an editor and you only send out form rejections, or acceptances. If those are the only two responses you send out, then this this uh, monologue doesn't apply to you. But if you send out tiered rejections, if you send out encouraging rejections, then I think uh, you should. I think you should have to bite the bullet at some point. I think you should have to say, "All right, either, uh, either I am sending out." tiered rejections too early to too many people or uh, I need to recognize that I'm not willing to put my money where my mouth is and publish a work you know if what you really believe let's because when you when you when you send it an, an encouraging rejection what you're saying is uh, as an editor you're saying I believe in you the writer and I think your work is pretty close and I think it's going to get better and so I, it's, it's worth it to me to invest a little bit in uh, in uh, sticking around for you now the problem is that the editor doesn't actually have to do anything it's the writer who's doing all of the work the it's the writer who's holding his breath it's the writer who's 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 hoping against hope that that next response is going to be an acceptance. So if you are an editor and if you have a writer who's writing to you and that you think is almost good enough, then I think you send out your three encouraging rejections. And if after that, and after that, I think you have to either say, I'm willing to publish this. I, it, I care so much about keeping a relationship with this writer going. I believe so much in my own taste and in this writer's potential that I'm willing to publish. Even you know, even if I say I need to edit it, I'm, I'm willing to publish this work. Or I think you should have to say, "It's gonna be my loss. I'm gonna close the door. I'm gonna break it off. And if and when this writer." really develops if i'm if i was honest when i was sending out those uh, those encouraging rejections then this writer is at some point going to get good enough and i am gonna be and i'm gonna miss out because i think simply encouraging a writer over and over and over again without ever actually saying anything is cruel is self-centered is uh is a uh, is a cowardly move right i think you should have to commit so uh I, you know i send out 
mostly form rejections. I send out some tiered rejections, but I actually think I, I have, you know, the decision doesn't come down to me really in most cases. I'm just one voice in the room, but I, I don't think we have strung people along. I maybe, now it, maybe if you're listening to this and I've, you've been strung along by me, you can write in and uh, correct me, but my, my guess is that if you have been, then uh, you hate my fucking guts and you're probably not listening. <laughs> But I really don't think we, as, as a rule, I don't think we do that. And and if we do, then uh, we should really stop. I think that, I think, you know, I don't know the perfect system. Maybe it's two, two encouragements and then you got to choose. Maybe that's really the way to do it. You send out two encouraging rejection letters. And then the third time, the third, you know, the next time you, uh, you have to either fish or cut bait. Maybe that's really how it should be. Because the other thing I think is that I think editors very often don't really know what they want. And part of the reason that they continue to send encouraging rejections is not just because your work has not been quite up to snuff, right? That's not really the whole reason that this is happening. The other reason this is happening is that the editor has the impression that he can keep this going indefinitely. And if he always thinks that, well, maybe the next one you submit is going to be better and you're going to be so grateful for this nice note of mine, if he thinks that, then there's really no reason for him to bite down on this one. Why not wait for the better? Why not wait for something better? If he thinks he can keep doing this indefinitely, then there's no reason for him to commit now. Whereas I think if he knew that it was this or nothing, that if it was acceptance or final rejection, then it might encourage a number of editors to say, you know what, this piece actually is pretty fucking good. And if I trust my own taste enough to encourage a writer, then maybe I should trust my own taste enough to say, yeah, I would rather publish this and continue to have a relationship with this writer than cut it off entirely. I think I think we should really establish the, I think that really needs to be the new etiquette. I think writers and editors alike should, should, uh, should adopt the final rejection as a measure. Again, this is not, this is not uh, a final rejection to send out immediately to uh, amateur writers who sent, you know, in lieu of a form rejection. This is only for, this is, this is to, this is to prevent uh, string alongs. This is to prevent leading people on. Because as, as Jason Chen puts it in his New York Magazine article, no successful relationship was ever born from a situation in which one person strung the other along until in a moment of epiphany, he realized everything glorious and noble and luminescent was in front of him all along. When benching happens, the old maxim is true. He's just not that into you. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. We've had a, a fair number of new listeners lately, so welcome all of you. 
And if you haven't yet taken a chance to do so, please, please do just go sometime this week and tell somebody you know about the podcast. Just, just do your friend a favor and me a favor at the same time and uh, let them know they might like it. Only if you like it. And if you don't, then why the fuck are you listening? Uh, thank you all in any event. Oh man, it has been a while since I did one of these fucking solo episodes. I've missed it and I have a whole lot to talk about. I'm not even going to be able to get to all of it this week, no doubt. But I will just dive in in no special order and try to see if I can cover at least some of it. So the other day I was driving my daughters to school and they're uh, two, there's uh, one's eight and one's four. And they were explaining this game to me. It's a game that they were playing the other day with some friends. It was all a little muddled, but the my older one was explaining to me that in the game, you could choose what you wanted to be. And she said, so I was a ghost wolf demon. And then my younger daughter released this sigh just laden with Velchmerts and said, I wanted to be a princess, but you had to be something real. She said, I wanted to be a princess, but you had to be something real. And of course, when she asked that, I had a lot of questions uh, among them. How did it, how did my four-year-old come to believe that princesses were not real? And also, did my eight-year-old believe that ghost wolf demons were real? And then we got to the school and they got, got out and I didn't get to, uh, <laughs> I didn't get to ask any follow-up questions, but this is something that in, you know, in, uh, in different terms has been a little bit on my mind lately. I said a while back that I've been thinking about lies and, uh, specifically the kind of lies that are it. So in the uh, Ibsen's the wild duck, he calls it the life lie, the lie that allows a, a man to sustain himself, to carry on in uh, uh, O'Neill's The Iceman Cometh. The same kind of lie basically is, is called pipe dream. The, the pipe dreams are what keep the, uh, the, the bar flies afloat. Um, and when, when, in both of those plays, when, when, you know, uh, somebody is, uh, is, confronted with that life lie, uh, the result is, uh, is despair and suicide, though in, in slightly different ways. So I've been thinking about that kind of lie, but in doing so, I guess I've come to the conclusion that there are really, there are really maybe three different things I'm interested in. One of these is the life lie, or what we might call denial. Uh, Brian, on a recent episode, referred to cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is this term that 
came out of this book called When Prophecy Fails uh, by um, Festinger, Reken, and Schachter, if that's how you say their names. This is a 1956 book about a, uh, a, a, a cult that was both religious and had to do with, was concerned with aliens. And they, kind of like the Millerites, they, had, they predicted an apocalypse that then turned out not to be the case. You know, they, the world did not end. And uh, th- so this book was concerned with sort of what happened when the people who were really committed to this belief were confronted with uh, the, the reality that they were wrong. And the, the hypothesis and, and, and there were subsequent tests and this is, you know, there's, there, there are plenty of objections to this idea, but, but, but basically the idea is that when people are, who have, who have really dedicated themselves to a belief, when they're confronted with contradictory evidence, they double down. And that is uh, totally, um, totally consistent with my experience. There's, uh, there's also a great, there's a great uh, novel by Philip K. Dick called do androids dream of electric sheep? It's great title. Uh, it's all it's it's the basis for the very different and differently titled movie Blade Runner, which is also great though it's sort of its own animal. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, there the 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 Earth is in very bad shape, and and much of humanity has has uh, has spread out to different parts of the solar system. But there is on the kind of on the dying irradiated planet Earth, there is this this uh, latter-day religion that springs up. It's, it's, it's spread by a radio, uh, uh, radio host, and the religion is, uh, is wildly popular, and it's all very much opposed to uh, replicants or people, you know, the, the robots that look like humans are indistinguishable from humans in most ways. A- a- anyway, at the end of the book, the, there is this moment when, in a very public way, indisputable proof that the religion is the, the the claims of the religion are false right there, there's this this moment where the 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 guy who hosts the radio the the guy who 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 leads the whole religion is revealed himself to be a robot to be a replicant and and there's in some way i don't even remember this sort of fundamentally undermines the claims of the religion everybody who believes in it is faced with uh, irrefutable proof that they're wrong and uh, in a way that just ring, rings totally true, what happens is that the very next day, everybody goes right back to uh, practicing the same religion as if nothing had ever happened. So this is, this is the concept of cognitive dissonance. It is, uh, it's related to denial. And that is an interesting idea. It is one I, I, I have a lot of questions. I'm really kind of fascinated both by denial and by fraud, which seem often to go hand in hand, like as, as in like big Ponzi schemes. But, but I do think that they're sort of, as I said, they're three different concepts that are easy to confuse with one another, but are really distinct. One is cognitive dissonance. Another is what Keats unfortunately called negative capability. Negative capability is a terrible name for this thing, which is, as, as he put it in a letter to his brothers, uh, negative capability is when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact 
and reason. And he, he kind of claims this is essential to, to greatness and, and particularly literary greatness. A lot of his reasoning on this feels flimsy to me. And the, the name is terrible because negative capability, really what that is sort of a paraphrase of would be something like uh, the, the capacity for negating or the ability to say no, to refuse something, which is, which is really very much like your ability to, to sustain denial. And, and I don't really think that's quite what he's talking about. What he's talking about is something more like a, 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 a tolerance for uncertainty, a tolerance for um, incompleteness, for ambiguity. And that does seem maybe important to uh, reading and writing uh, in, you know, beyond uh, the baseball almanacs. But but so that that is another separate category that I I, I distinguish from denial or, or cognitive dissonance. We have cognitive dissonance, we have negative capability, and then we have actually, I would say, this third thing, which is the simultaneous perception of two incompatible realities. That is, it's not the willed refusal to perceive a contradictory reality, right? That's denial. And it's not the willingness to entertain two contradictory realities. It's the simultaneous perception of two contradictory realities. When you are faced with two worlds, two ways of looking, two ways of seeing, and you can't erase either of them, even if you'd like to. And that's really a, a different thing. It's, you know, probably the closest I've come to finding a, a, um, a concise formulation of it is uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' Uh, characterization of what he calls double consciousness. Now he's talking specifically about the experience of being uh, black in America around the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And he, he says, uh, it is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his two-ness. An American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. This is obviously an idea that has been given, uh, rightly given a lot of attention in uh, criticism and commentary on the black American experience. I I, I do think that it, it is... Um, as I said, he, he's getting at something very specific to America's history and America's social, racial struggles. But I think the, the, the notion of double consciousness also is, is, uh, has application elsewhere. Again, maybe there's another term for it. I don't know. I haven't found a better one. But I do think that this phenomenon occurs in a number of different situations, a number of different um, contexts. So one in particular that I found uh, frustrating and uh, uh, 
intriguing recently is in Freud. I was reading reading Freud again against perhaps against my better judgment. Uh, I, this was this was just a short article I mentioned to Brian called "Morning and Melancholia," and uh, he he says in it mostly things that I think. Um, contemporary psychiatrists would, would basically sign off on uh, among these that uh, grief is more or less a normal healthy occurrence of the same uh, set of experiences and symptoms that are present in depression which is to say that depression is a little bit like grief without occasion so that even though depression is a malady and grief is merely uh, a a um, an experience of sorrow. It's merely a, a, an, an a, gr grief is unpleasant, but it is a normal, healthy process. Though I, apparently the D, the DSM has now uh, even changed this claim, which maybe I mean maybe I'll have to get Joanna on to uh, to discuss this. But so he, he says this. He also talks about depressive realism, uh, which is the um, the 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 measurable. Uh, experimentally supported notion that depressed people see themselves more accurately than not depressed people. Another way of spinning this is to say that healthy, normal people have a self-serving bias. That is, they distort their sense of themselves positively and that doing that actually helps them function, helps them have a good, healthy life. And if you don't have that, uh, you you are depressed. You know, probably it's not a simple causal relationship. It's probably it's a little bit recursive. But that there is in fact something wrong with you if you really see yourselves as you are. Uh, Freud Freud says of a he's talking about the melancholic, a, a, a depressed person. He says when in his heightened self-criticism he describes himself as petty, egoistic, dishonest, lacking in independence, one whose sole aim has been to hide the weakness of his own nature, it may be, so far as we know, that he has come pretty near to understanding himself. We only wonder why a man has to be ill before he can be accessible to a truth of this kind. <laughs> as I discovered when I first... Uh, first encounter this idea. It's pretty depressing as a depressed person to, to learn about depressive realism. Anyway, the self-serving bias doesn't just apply to oneself. It actually applies to oneself as well as those uh, close to, to one, Th those that you love, those that you are uh, related to, th those who are close to you in your life, receive a, you know, a slightly diminished, but, it, but a, a still significant uh, glow from the self-serving bias. Uh, I learned about this personally when uh, I was filling out childhood development forms for my, my daughters. Uh, there, there's this, this thing, I mean, I don't know if it happens everywhere, but at least with our pediatrician, uh, every time we went to a kind of a milestone doctor appointment with one of the girls you have which you know the first year of life you have them fucking all the time and then you, they, they get spaced out a little bit beyond that you have vaccines you have uh you have to get certain procedures and checkups and whatever uh to make sure the child's developing normally and one of the things they do is they give you a questionnaire to fill out it has little illustrations on it and uh, uh multiple choice questions as well as some essay questions and what the, all of the questions are about whether your child is capable of 
uh, you know, uh, holding on to it, standing up while holding on to the edge of a table, or uh, picking up a small object between one finger and his thumb, or uh, saying uh, uh, two-syllable words, or you know, following three instructions in a row without having them repeated. These these sort of you know cognitive and physical markers of development, uh, gross motor skills, fine motor skills, and so on, and. So I uh, took our daughters to the doctor, and so I would fill one of these out at every visit for a while. I slow down as you get older, but I, I was filling these out, and we got some kind of disturbing results where it became clear that that you know pretty consistently, questionnaire after after questionnaire, our daughters were both uh, cognitively and physically behind the eight ball. They were. They were really uh, underdeveloped, you know, to to a sort of a you know beyond the normal range, and we had a, a little bit of a the funny experience of feeling like well you know at home, talking to them, playing with them, doing things with them, they seem fine. They don't seem slow. They don't seem disturbed. They don't seem incapable. But the you know the the in black and white the test results of these questionnaires were. Were, were very clear. They were their their development was was not what it was supposed to be. And then uh, <laughs> there was a visit when I was occupied and, and Joanna had the day off, so so she took one of the girls and she filled out the questionnaire, and uh, and the girls were fine. The girls were were totally fine. They were totally normal. They were even maybe a little bit uh, ahead in their development. And, you know, what became clear when we discussed this with the doctor was that uh, I had been filling out the forms without the benefit of a self-serving bias. So my daughters <laughs> scored uh, below normal. They were not doing as well as they should have been doing because I was assessing them accurately. And in order to be useful, in order to be accurate, the tests are calibrated for a self-serving bias, meaning that the test only works if the parent filling it out has a normal, healthy uh, uh, psyche and looks at his child with a little bit of a glow of, uh, of, of inaccurate um, uh, admiration. So... The self-serving bias applies to you. It also applies to those around you. And, and this was where I was sort of excited to discover uh, what, what is, I think, to me, the, what to me is maybe the, the fatal flaw in depressive realism. Um, as disheartening as it is to be told that if you are a depressed person, you, your, your shitty vision of yourself is, is, is an accurate one, it occurs to me that there is one way in which it is fundamentally inaccurate. And that is your perception of your loved one's perception of you. Right? Part of what is so uh, <laughs> unpleasant about being depressed is that you see yourself accurately as a piece of shit. And you also imagine, because we all we all imagine the minds of those close to us, but when you imagine the minds of those close to you, you fill in 
that person's perception of you with your perception of yourself. And of course, unless everybody around you is also depressed, they don't have depressive. They don't have access to depressive realism. They are looking at you with a self-serving bias, which is, which is to say that you might hear what your friends and family members say. You might, you might intellectually understand that they see you in a, a, a rosy light, but you're incapable of experiencing that perception of yourself or even that, uh, a virtual perception of yourself. You know, we all know, we all know that the best way to enjoy a piece of art again, as if for the first time, whether this be a book, a movie, a play, a song, whatever, is to, is to experience it again with a friend or a loved one. Because what you will do without even having to try is you will imagine that person's experience of it for the first time. And so you'll have this little, uh, this little slightly muted, uh, new encounter with it yourself. We do this. Sometimes you don't even have to be with that person. You can just imagine if that person were watching the movie with you, listening to the song with you, reading the poem with you and, uh, and have a, you know, a, a not trivial simulation of, of that, uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a new original encounter. But of course, depressive realism prevents the depressed person from, uh, from the benefit of encountering himself again that way. So uh, there, is this, there is this discussion in Mourning and Melancholia of the, the genesis of melancholy, where it comes from. And while I think he's pretty wrong, so I mean Freud is, is typically at his worst when he's most trying to be a scientist, uh, and, and he does get pretty, he does get pretty far into the weeds with the the cathexis and transference and all of this made up technical <laughs> vocabulary, right? Like like pseudo scientific jargon, and that's that's sort of the the the, the least. Uh, it is the most opaque and least appealing part of the essay, but he gives this account of what mourning is. And then he says, mourning is one thing. And then melancholy is a sort of a, it is the experience of mourning, uh, without the proper occasion of mourning. Now, I don't know if what he says about mourning is accurate and I don't, I really don't believe that what he says about melancholy is accurate, but in both cases, there is a really beautiful story that he tells. The story that he tells of mourning is that, you know, when we lose a loved one, somebody who's really important to you, and of course, the, the more important this person, the greater the mourning when, when that person dies. If someone's really important to you, you don't locate him in just one place in your mind. Right? You have every moment of uh, encounter with that person. The memory of that person's face at different ages, the memory of all the different personal experiences you've had together, the, uh, the words of that person, the smell of that person, the sound of that person's voice. In the Borges story, Funes the Memorius, there's this, this boy who has the ability to, or he, he, he doesn't have the ability not to, perfectly remember everything, he, everything he's exposed to, every 
grain of sensation he's exposed to, every flicker of light, of smell, of sound he's exposed to, he remembers all of it. And part of what this means is that he, he, so he ends up lying in the dark in a, in a bed alone, trying to experience as little as possible because uh, it, the, the world is so overwhelming. But another difficulty he has is that he, he can barely talk to anybody. Obviously, he knows uh, he, he knows how to speak, but for him, the dog is not just one dog. Right? The, the dog at every conceivable angle of perception. The dog yesterday versus the dog today. Uh, the, um, the dog as treated by one person versus another, as discussed in one context versus another. The dog asleep versus the dog awake. The, these are all totally, totally distinct entities to him. It feels crazy to him to discuss them as if they're the same single thing because obviously there's there this unfathomably complex set of slices of doghood and so he he can't he, he hardly knows how to talk to a normal person anymore when freud talks about the experience of the bereaved he sounds a little bit like funas he says that basically we are Funes when it comes to those we love. We have every slice, every angle, every snapshot, every moment recorded. And so what has to happen when that person ceases to exist is this process that, that Freud calls reality testing. He says that basically what the mind does is it takes the loved one's absence, the loved one's death, and it basically has to hold it up against every distinct memory, every sense, every understanding, every concept, every, every sensation of the loved one. It has to hold up this loss and compare and say, oh, this is gone. Oh, this is gone. Oh, his smell is gone. Oh, his laugh is gone. Oh, his eyes are gone. His voice is gone. The, the warmth of his hand is gone. And, and reality test every single record of this person's existence to confirm that he really is completely gone. And that's why mourning feels so evergreen for so long. It feels to be constantly renewing itself. And it's full of these sudden, uh, startling recollections of the obvious. Uh, um, uh, Wordsworth talks about this in Surprised by Joy. He, he, he thinks of this thing and he wants, to, uh, uh, he wants to relate it to the beloved. And then he says, uh, it's only then that he remembers that, that she's dead. But how could I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least division of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only. Uh, when I stood forlorn, uh, he looks at her grave. So th this, this surprise, not the initial surprise by joy, but the surprised recognition of the loved one's death again, 
Uh, Freud would say that this is this is mourning over and over and over again because we're constantly having to reality test every bit of our recollection against the uh, the harsh present tense. So again, I don't know how. I mean, it sounds. I will say that at least sounds convincing as an account of of mourning. I don't know if it is. I haven't been through mourning of quite this kind before, but it sounds convincing. What is less convincing, though equally intriguing, is his account of melancholy. He says that the melancholic, so melancholy is occasioned by a particular kind of relationship that a neurotic person has with a beloved. You you have to love someone deeply, but then also have a profound ambivalence toward this person. Resentment, hatred, jealousy, uh, uh, anger. Uh, In some way, you have to feel a strong hostility towards this person as well as a strong affection and uh, devotion. You're not willing to break away from this person, but you also... Uh, can't make peace with this person. And so he says that when that happens, the neurotic mind will uh, will split its ego in two. It will split the critical ego, the ego that says, I'm so mad at this person. And this these are all this person's faults. It will take that ego and break it off from the part of the ego that runs that simulation of the beloved that knows the beloved, that cares about the beloved, that has that version of the beloved's mind spinning away, re-encountering the world again, as we imagine our loved ones doing, it it breaks that part off and uh, buries it. And he he has this wonderful line. He says, by taking flight into the ego, love escapes extinction. That's a great, great line. This is in... Who translated? Oh, James Strachey translated this. this. is the 1918 essay, Morning in Melancholia. By taking flight into the ego, love escapes extinction. That's gorgeous. It just, it, it, the, the result is that he says that basically when a melancholic is abusing himself, what he's really doing is he's voicing the, the forbidden resentment toward the beloved. So that he says, this is why melancholics love to talk about their pains, why depressives love to complain about their depression. He is right, I think, in identifying that depressed people are extremely annoying. That's totally true. Uh, but he he says that the reason that the 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 depressed person attacks himself so mercilessly. The reason even that depressed people do sometimes kill themselves is the reason for all this is that that hostility, that loathing this is directed toward the self is actually just uh, really that's a feeling that he has toward the beloved. And that just doesn't ring true at all. It's sort of a fascinating story, but it doesn't seem at all the like what that that doesn't I mean he doesn't seem at all to be describing what melancholy is like what depression is like what he is describing I think is a very real experience that is the experience of the beloved in the presence of the melancholic I think it is 
extremely common for those very close to the depressed people to feel as if there is something fundamentally outwardly hostile about depression, as if there is something personal about the melancholic's uh, uh, moping and sulking and sour mood, that there is in some way the melancholic is sort of taking it out on them. Right? I think that experience is totally common. And so I think what Freud's really describing here is how the loved ones of the depressed imagine the depressed are thinking. It is, it is a, it is, I think, sort of the flip side of depressive realism, right? You must think so little of me, either because your behavior is so awful and so unpleasant for me, and surely on some level you know this, and that's in fact why you're doing it, or as in the case of depressive realism, you must think so little of me because I think so little, little of myself. And in fact, I'm right. So I think, you know, the, the, the depressed person's perception of the other's contempt is inaccurate, but also inescapable. And similarly with the, the beloved's experience of the depressed person's hostility. It's not accurate and maybe they know it's not accurate but it still feels accurate and that's why I, I distinguish this from negative capability as well as from cognitive dissonance it is a an, an, an inescapable double perception double consciousness if you take du bois line which again i don't think i think that line that, that there's there's enough of a an historical uh an association with that that uh, uh, with the with the phenomenon he's specifically articulating there, that I think I think that that term really belongs only to uh, the, the the black experience. But there is something like that—a double perception, whatever you want to call it. I don't have a good name for it, but but it is it is this other thing. And you know, uh, I was so annoyed at Keats clumsy thinking i mean and you know it's not really fair he was just writing a private letter to his brothers that we've then poached and made too much of over the years but i think that sometimes even more than mere negative capability as a kind of which i, I think of as, a, as being a sort of a a little bit of a playful phenomenon right negative capability is a again it's a willingness to entertain certain ideas certain possibilities. I think that it may be that this this double perception is one that that may be even more native to poetry. Uh, Auden, as I mentioned the other day talking to Alexis, Auden of course said that, that poetry might be called the clear expression of mixed feelings. And this is, I think, a similar idea. It's the clear, sometimes, you know, the, the irresolvable contradictions that where where say a Freud, you know Freud believed that what you really needed in order for therapy to work was simply to sort of shake the patient out of his delusions. What you really needed was just for the patient to recognize what he was doing deep down, and that would cure everything. The simple recognition. This is this is the same thing that the two sort of agitator characters in the Wild Duck and the Iceman Cometh. What they do is they try to. Uh, uh, disillusion everyone they try to you know confront people with the truth 
and uh, the, this double perception I'm talking about, it's not something you can be disabused of, right? Because both realities continue to be apparent. Um, it's not, uh, neither is it merely a, uh, 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 um, neither is the experience of it an indication of any sort of capability at all, right? I don't think that, that you know, Keats attributes negative capability to a certain class of people, people who, who, who are capable of achieving great things. And again, particularly in uh, the arts, the double perception, I think, affects any, can affect anybody. And again, I don't, I don't really think it has a cure, but what it does have is a friend in poetry. I've been looking at a number of different poems from different periods. I talked with uh, uh, David Kern the other day about uh, Holy Sonnet 14, I think it's four, 14. Yeah, I think it's 14. Uh, Better my heart, three-person God for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. Um, this is John Donne's sonnet uh, to God. It's a, it's a sort of, it's an, it's an unrequited love poem in which the, uh, the speaker of the poem is the unrequiter and is sort of really, I mean, begs God to force him into love. It's a, it is a poem filled with contradiction paradox, uh, but it is also a pretty convincing uh, uh, evocation of a feeling that affects many of us, whether we're religious or not. Uh, I was also looking at The Wanderer, which is, which is a favorite of mine. It's a, an old um, anonymous, uh, old English poem, Anglo-Saxon poem. Uh, my favorite translation, I mean, not translation, I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, rendering into modern English of it, because of course the original is it's pretty opaque uh, if you don't speak uh, Old English. The, the, my favorite version of it is Charles W. Kennedy's, which uh, really doesn't, it's, it ends up being kind of hard to find. Even the link that I, I, I've put to it in an earlier episode has gone dead since then. I'll put a new one. Uh, but his um, his poem begins, Oft to the Wanderer, sorry, it's not Charles Kennedy's poem. It's an anonymous poem. Kennedy translated it. Uh, Oft to the Wanderer, weary of exile, cometh God's pity, compassionate love. Though woefully toiling on wintry seas with churning oar in the icy wave, homeless and helpless he fled from fate. Thus saith the wanderer, mindful of misery, grievous disasters, and death of kin. And then uh, we begin this speech in the voice of the wanderer, in which he he is what he seems to be a sort of like a a homeless Viking whose whose lord, his ring giver, is dead and. Uh, his, you know, the, the people he came from, the places he comes from, those are all destroyed. Uh, the, the old world is coming apart and he's, he's lost. He's wandering, uh, hopelessly with a, you know, having lost everything. And, and the, the, the poem is, is largely a, a chronicle of everything lost and a, a description of the experience of uh, bereavement. Uh, the ending is um, pretty staggering. <laughs> he says, uh, there's this list of earls and how they were killed. Um, 
Some battle launched on their long last journey, one a bird bore o'er the billowing sea, one the gray wolf slew, one a grieving earl sadly gave to the grave's embrace. The warden of men hath wasted this world. Oh, wait, sorry. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, that's no, you're talking about. Sorry, they're not all earls. They are all heroes. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, joyless and silent, the heroes are sleeping where the proud host fell by the wall they defended. It gets more and more hopeless as he goes on. He says, uh, storms now batter these ramparts of stone, blowing snow and the blast of winter enfold the earth. Night shadows fall darkly lowering from the north driving, raging hail and wrath upon men. Wretchedness fills the, the realm of earth and fate's decrees transform the world. Here, wealth is fleeting, friends are fleeting, man is fleeting, maid is fleeting. All the foundation of earth shall fail. And then there's this coda. Thus spake the sage in solitude pondering, good man is he who guardeth his faith. He must never too quickly unburden his breast of its sorrow, but eagerly strive for redress. And happy the man who seeketh for mercy from his heavenly father, our fortress and strength. There's been no discussion of Jesus or God the Father in this poem so far. This has been a pretty pagan, pretty secular, pretty hopeless uh, poem. Uh, so, sorry, we, we, at the very beginning, we do get off to the wanderer, weary of exile, cometh God's pity, compassionate love. And then we're told, well, the, listen to the wanderer. Then we hear the wanderer for several pages. And then at the, the end, we're told, yeah, that's, the, that's what the wanderer says. And uh, by the way, he's, uh, he's, he's good. He's, he looks at the world through, he looks at the world with jaundiced eyes, just as a good Christian should. Because Christians were always saying, we're always um, uh, 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 spurning the world, looking down on the, the world and turning to the next world, the next life, the kingdom of heaven. And so the, the, old, the old hopeless Vikings contempt for reality is, is read as a, a Christian um, restraint. And our eyes are turned again uh, uh, to heaven. What seems pretty clearly to be the case here is that there, there, there is an old poem that is then transcribed and reframed by... Uh, a new hand, Christian hand, probably uh, a Christian hand reframing what is almost certainly a pagan poem. But in the end, as with the seafarer, as with the great uh, Middle English um, poem, Ubi sunt quiante nos ferunt, there, there's a sort of a, a double awareness. We, we do see this, this hopeless uh, vision of the world, but then that hopeless vision of the world is, is, is colored differently when we see it as the mark of true faith in the next world, just as the martyrs uh, had contempt for their own bodies. They, they turned away from even uh, the desire not to feel horrible pain. So devoted were they to the next world. Both of those realities are present in the poem at least as we receive it now, and it feels sort of inadequate to to deny either one. It doesn't really feel accurate to say one of these is an illusion. They're both present. Similarly, you know, in a a, a, a much much shorter poem, the world is too much with us. Uh, one of my very favorite. 
poems. This is Wordsworth. It's just a little sonnet. Uh, he says, the world is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. We have given our hearts away, a sordid boon. This sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. For this, for everything, we are out of tune. It moves us not. Great God, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outward. It's one of my favorite claims in English literature. I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. So might I, standing on this pleasant lee, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn. Have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. When he says the world is too much with us, I, I take him as, as meaning by the world what uh, the... Uh, New Testament writers meant by the world and what the, the German phenomenologists meant by the world. Not the earth. Not the earth is too much with us, but the uh, the busy world of... Yeats has another line about this, also in Adam Adam's Curse, um, the poem I apparently quote from more than any other on this fucking podcast. The, the, he calls it the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. So the world is... The, the, the organization of human endeavors. Um, and that is too much with us. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. The world is with us, and that makes us far farther and farther away from nature, from the earth. The whole poem is about what we can't see, what we can't experience when we look out at the world. Sorry, when we look out at the earth, when we look out at nature, when we look out at the landscape, we see the world. We don't see, uh, we, don't, we don't have a feeling of involvement in nature. Nature is a wilderness separate from us. But he only manages to articulate this loss, this blindness, this inability to see by describing what it is that we're not seeing. The poem is, is both at once. It, it says... You know, I'd rather be a pagan suckled in a creed outworn. He says in that claim that it's a, it's a set of beliefs that don't make sense. But he wishes he had been raised believing a bunch of things he knows not to be true. Because in some sense, he says we're out of tune with nature. In some sense, even though it's not true, he would be more in, in line with the world. He would maybe be... Uh, he would, in fact, possess nature more than he does now. It would be, you know, false factually, but maybe writer, truer in some way. The last four lines of the poem are just descriptions of everything he imagines looking out and seeing. He, he describes these things by insisting that they are not there, that he is not seeing them. So might I, standing on this pleasantly, have glimpses that would make me less forlorn have sight of Proteus rising from the sea, or hear old Triton blow his wreathed horn. You could imagine, you know, he hears an ambiguous sound and could imagine that's the, the horn of Triton. Proteus famously, of course, is a shapeshifter, the old man of the sea. He could look like literally anything. And so when you look out at the world, you could see anything, and that might be Proteus. But of course, only if you, if you believe in Proteus, which Wordsworth doesn't. Despite... <laughs> imagining so vividly everything that he could see 
this whole, this, this personified world, the sea that bears her bosom to the moon, the winds that will be howling at all hours and are upgathered now like sleeping flowers. The whole world is personified in his vision. It's all, uh, it is all as if, as it might be for a pagan suckled and a creed outworn. But at the same time, he knows he doesn't have access to that. You can't resolve those two conflicting visions of reality. Neither is this a, a mere entertainment of possibilities. This is a, this is a condition. And it's, it's, it is, you, we do justice to it only by giving it voice so richly in a poem like this. The last example that's been on my mind uh, is a much more recent poem. It's my favorite poem in uh, Shane McRae's collection, The Gilded Auction Block. I think it's, hold on a sec, let me pull the book. Yeah, so The Gilded Auction Block came out in 2020, 2019. So it came out in 2019. So my favorite poem in this book, and it's, it's also the poem that gives the book its title, is called Purchase. It was published in the Washington Spectator originally, I believe. I think that's right. Uh, so Purchase, um, which which makes good use of its title, right? Purchase refers here both to a uh, a, a, a financial transaction, um, specifically in this case, the transaction uh, of purchasing, of buying the speaker of the poem as a piece of property. But but it also refers to the uh, the attempt to gain a foothold, to get get purchase, to gain purchase in the world. Also by the speaker, who seems to be here, you know, to to um, reiterate uh, Jonathan Farmer's argument, he seems to be a version of of Shane McRae himself. Uh, who knows? But it, it does seem to be it's a, a black American man who teaches college. So it does does seem to be a version of Shane. But at any rate, he, here's Purchase, uh, which is, I think, another poem that carries this sort of this um, stubborn double perception, this irresolvable double perception. So this is Purchase. America, I, I like it better on the, the Washington Spectator's version is sort of sort of uh, not beautifully presented, but here, I'll, I'll read it from the book because it looks a lot better there. Purchase. America, I was born incapable of owning what I work for even, but it doesn't matter. It never mattered. It doesn't matter where I went to school or where I teach or who. America still my life belongs to somewhere as some white person who can't live it because I'm living it. America, and they would live it better, easier, the way the maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin, the white man who, as I was walking to wearing a hoodie to a meeting in a building which was at the time a crew was repairing, he stepped up to me and asked, "So are you guys just drying out the floor here? How?" But with my life. Can I answer him? Who calls me down from the gilded auction block? So this is, as I said, it's my favorite poem in this book. It's the one that really stuck in my craw the most, and I didn't quite know what to do with it for a while. But I think that at least part of what this poem is doing is uh, is enacting this sort of 
double consciousness, double perception. Uh, here, as in a lot of McRae's poems, he uses this sort of stuttering construction. Uh, the, um, America still my life belongs to somewhere a some white person who can't live it. Uh, the way the maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin, the white man who, as I was walking to, wearing a hoodie to a meeting, and he you know restarts sentences, he, he interrupts them, he, he 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 you know it never becomes incoherent, but there is certainly a sense that the the train of thought is jerky, is not smooth. Uh, uh, there is though a moment um, uh, uh, where the, the poem becomes very. Uh, e easy and conversational and effortless. And that is when the the white guy says to him, so are you guys just drying out the floor here? <laughs> Which, you know, after all of the the agonizing, belabored speech of the speaker uh, is just, it's sort of both bathetic and heartbreaking. <laughs> but, you know, I think there is a, you know, the claim of the poem from the beginning is, uh, is I mean, the first sentence, the first line, sorry, the first line is America, I was born incapable. It's a refusal of all ability to do anything. And then the elaboration is I was incapable of owning what I work for even, right? Which is, which is of course the literal condition of, of slavery. But as he goes on, we we hear sort of more and more qualifications to this this assertion and it's not that the assertion is is not true it's just that this is a this is an extremely complex set of feelings it doesn't matter it doesn't matter where i went to school or where i teach or who of course you know in in very literal terms the speaker is making a living is certainly is capable of doing things is capable of, of, of owning things of purchasing things of, of being paid but at the same time there is an awareness of a perception by others america still my life belongs to somewhere a some white person who can't live it because i'm living it right the boat there's both the the old uh suggestion of literal ownership my life belongs to a white person, as well as uh, a, a, an awareness of resentment, an awareness of being perceived as a, a usurper. They would live it better, easier. And then we get this specific incident. The way the maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin, the white man who, as I was walking to, wearing a hoodie to a meeting in a building which at the time a crew was repairing, he stepped up to me and asked, so are you guys just drying out the floor here? So I think there is a, a version of the story. It's very, very short, told very quickly and simply, but there's a version of it that I think, you know, it might be a little bit more like what one encounters in, uh, in Citizen. Which is, which is, you know, in, in large part is a book of extremely lucidly recounted incidents of uh, racially motivated or, or grounded slighting, uh, misperception, uh, you know, small but sometimes significant injustices, uh, often on a college campus or in that, in that context. Here, though, I think the, 
the story is complicated in ways that that it, it tends not to be in, say, Citizen, the way the maybe the professor would, or maybe he was staff at Oberlin. The white man who, as I was walking to, wearing a hoodie to a meeting. He, he interrupts himself a couple of times to qualify what he's saying or to elaborate on the story. He says, he, he imagines this professor, he's a professor, and he imagines another professor not able to see him as a peer and saying, hey, you, you must be staff here. But then he, he interrupts himself to say, well, maybe this guy was staff. Maybe he was seeing me as a peer instead of seeing me as, you know, a, 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 as, a, as a, a slightly more prestigious and better compensated worker. Maybe he, it wasn't that he couldn't imagine me being his equal. It was that he couldn't imagine me being his better. Uh, if we, if we believe for a moment that professors are better than staff, which, which plenty of professors seem to believe. He also breaks in to say, I was wearing a hoodie, which of course is not really significant insofar as it should, it shouldn't affect how people see you. It shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't cause people to think of you, uh, as, as, you know, not being a professor, but he puts that in there. We, you know, we, we can't help but think, you know, have uh, brought to mind cases like, you know, Trayvon Merton's murder. But also it, it, it almost seems to be a saying, well, maybe it, this had part, it was partly this. Like he's explaining why the guy might have seen him this way. It wasn't just the color of his skin. It was maybe also the way he was dressed. Just as it was maybe also the the man's own status. Um. None of this excuses the man's sort of shitty assumption, but you know, just as the really stark claim that the poem begins with gets qualified and complicated, so this this moment of you know race, racist lack of consideration, what you know, people today often call microaggression. So I think that, again, that term always kind of chafes because I just think it's it's a little bit inaccurate. But this, this sort of small but shitty racist incident is, uh, gets, gets muddled by the, you know, the stuttering, I think that the, this, this, the stuttering effect that works really, really well in this poem, even better than it does in some other poems until we're, we, we end with, we end with a sentence that's not broken up by qualifications, a sentence that has a smooth and clear syntax, but it's also a slightly higher register and a slightly um, more formal construction. How but with my life can I answer him? Right, meaning both, what answer can I offer this guy other than a demonstration of everything I've done with my life, my with my, you know, in in um, uh, in uh, the academy, the, you, the term you use for your resume is your vita. How but with my life, of course, also meaning my literal life, what he imagined earlier, literally belonging to a white person. How but with my life can I answer him? answer the question, so are you guys just drying out the floor here? Which is wonderfully uh, mundane and undignified is this interruption 
this agonized uh, poem. How but with my life can I answer him? Who calls me down from the gilded auction block? Which, it, which again, it's double-edged. He calls me down. He, he, he is presumably claiming me as a, as a, uh, um, as a purchaser, as a slave owner. He is, he is bringing me down from the auction block to be me, but he's also, in some sense, bringing me down off of a pedestal. He's he's knocking me down a peg, and he's also taking me off of the auction block. Right, the, the, just as we're told, I can't, you know, I can't own what I work for, even though I do work for things and I do own them. Um, of course, I, you know, my life belongs to someone else, but it doesn't really belong to someone else. Just as all of these claims, you know, maybe this guy was staff, maybe he wasn't a professor, maybe he he was thought was thinking about what I was wearing more than what I looked like. In all these cases, you know, the the speaker second guesses himself, but he also taps into the the reality of American history. The past and the present are are uh, are at hand in the same moment, right? Um, in some way, it doesn't matter what was going through this white guy's mind because his comment, his assumption, uh, calls up all of this history and all of this reality for the speaker, for Shane. And even though his life is in some sense gilded, is, is touched with gold, with glory, with privilege, he also feels perpetually on the auction block. Uh, so I think there is a simpler version of this poem that would simply be a complaint about a dumb white guy on a college campus. This poem is that, but it's not merely that. This is, I think, partly, you know, in thinking about these, the difference between denial and double perception or, or, or negative capability, you know, I think when people are in denial, we do all have a tendency to want to shake them out of it. And I think that is what people sometimes have in mind when they talk about the importance of uh, teaching a message in a poem. But the poem that merely complained about the dumb white guy on campus being dumb wouldn't be, inac wouldn't be inaccurate, but it would also be uh, focusing on the wrong person. This is not finally a poem about a, you know, there was a, an interesting note in, I read a review of Claudia Rankin's play, new play, it's based on an article she wrote about being treated badly by uh, rich white people in first class. <laughs> I don't, this is just something funny about a social justice essay written about uh, how hard it is to be in first class. I, I believe it. I mean, I believe she was treated badly. I believe there were some racist assholes on that plane, but the first class thing is hard to get over. But there, there was an interesting note in there that, that, that um, the play, which, which did not sound like it was very good as theater, but the, the play was as the as the director and and as Rankin and the director both stated, it's put in the program apparently, the play is meant for white people, which seems crazy to me. It just seems like a, like a sort of a weird ne negligence 
Um, this poem is not just for white people. It's a poem that evocatively expresses an experience. The experience of the person being slighted in this moment and finding the past inescapable. He doubts himself. He doubts his own worth. He also doubts his suspicions. Right? If any of those contradictions could be resolved, uh, it would be a simpler situation. It would be easier to laugh off this guy or to uh, chew this guy out. How dare you? But it is a contradiction that, that can't be solved. And rather than trying to solve it or pretending that it's solved, the poem just presents the experience and all of its uh, messiness and complication. So um, that's most of what I wanted to talk about this week. I did get, I got some um, listener email and I also found some really good stupid poetry news um, articles. So I'm going to have to come back to most of that, but maybe I will close with uh, something especially dumb. So this was in Vogue <laughs> um, last month, the end of last month. The title of this piece is, uh, this is in the fashion section of Vogue. The title is, A Poet Wore Three Outfits for Her Surprise-Themed Wedding. <laughs> Rachel Rabbit White radiates flirtatious style. Whenever the former sex worker and current poet has been profiled or interviewed, the journalist always makes note of White's outfits. A blazing hot pink juicy couture sweatshop, sweatshop, Jesus, sweatsuit, or a baby blue slip dress accessorized by wit, accessorized with white fishnet leggings. She is pint-sized, but her kittenish style packs a punch. This is an article about uh, this woman's wedding. It is a second wedding. She's, she was already married to the man she married in a bar. It was also a surprise wedding. So people came for a poetry reading to the KGB bar in New York City, and they were apparently um, lined up out the door for the, for her poetry reading. And then instead of a poetry reading, uh, she got married and, and had three different very impressive outfits during her uh, wedding to a career bank robber. Um, I don't really feel the need to poke fun at, at Rachel Rabbit White or at Nico Walker, her, her husband, um, because they seem just to be having a good time and getting, getting a lot of attention, uh, in some cases for poetry, I, I suppose. But I, I think I have to just give grief to Vogue magazine as well as everybody who showed up for this fucking party. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe it was a good party. Maybe they had fun, in which case, great. But, uh, but the idea that this is somehow... Um, that this somehow has anything to do with poetry is baffling to me. I mean, there's, there's um, certainly doesn't seem to be any mention of actual poems anywhere in this article, despite all of the guests or almost all of the guests being there in expectation of a poetry reading. Let's look up some of her poems. Rachel Rabbit White, her Twitter profile says, author of Porn Carnival and... Porn Carnival Paradise Edition, 
writer artist formerly known as the hooker laureate of the dirtbag left <coughs> mrs nico walker where are the poems oh wait there's a photograph of her reading a book po poems poem um, all right so what, let's see the poems two poems oh no no they're really long oh no let's try some more to see if we can find something a little shorter oh fuck they're really long God damn it, Rachel Rabbit White. Let me find like like any poem that's not fucking five pages long. All of these poems are unbelievably long. Uh I mean they're they're Okay, let's go to Good Old Poetry Foundation. What do you have? They only have prose. Let's see if we can find one one more chance to find actual poems from God damn it. That's not even an article. Blush lit. All right, here we go. Let's just read this one. This one isn't that long. It was a summer of heavy, but of course I had to betray her. Okay, I don't, all right, that's the title. We went to the wrong orgy. We were supposed to give a toast to welcome every man of every hour. Man of every hour. I gotta stop thinking while I read this. The way a plant loves another plant, wearing our distaste in long blonde wigs. Don't let your mouth make a check that your ass can't cash. My mom always used to say that. Empathizing with inanimate objects. A face in wallpaper, the temperament of a lamp, the menacing presence of a doorknob. I'd never seen a cockroach until the cat swallowed one, choked, coughed, I'd never seen a cockroach until the cat swallowed one? Choked, cough, the roach crawled out whole, okay. Should have made a little cockroach bed with a cotton ball pillow, learned to sew a tiny cockroach nighty. What? We've been through this, my ex-husband said. The idea that plants need our care is Christian. Christian has a little squiggle before it, usually indicating like roughly or, or approximately. We've been through this, my ex-husband said, the idea that plants need our care is Christian. I was like, don't ass check. Sorry. I was like, don't ass cash my check. Okay. I think I follow. Good thing the prize for being married is all the drinks in the world. I mean, I kind of like that. I don't really get it. Good thing the prize for being married is all the drinks in the world. It's like the, um, William Matthews has that poem called the penalty for bigamy is two wives. All right. All right. End of the poem here. An attendee who was interviewed agreed. Those girls were at the wrong orgy. Okay. I mean, that's kind of funny. Honestly, this is not worse than Ocean Vuong's poetry. I mean, I'm baffled by some of it, but, uh, yeah, it's got some specific crisp images. It has is some funny, one-liners it's uh um a lot of it is is sort of fragmented and seemingly you know has a uh a vague theme that it returns to but doesn't quite complete a narrative or uh, uh clearly express a feeling or an idea yeah i mean I, this reminds me of that really long uh slightly jumbled kawa akbar poem yeah i would say this is definitely no worse than Ocean Vuong's poems or Kava Akbar's poems or, 
I would say it's worse. It's not as well written, not nearly as well written as uh, Ben Lerner's poems, but it's a lot more fun to read, partly because it's already fucking over. Um, yeah, so yeah, I take it all back. I don't, I, I, uh, I, I, I give a thumbs up to Rachel Rabbit White, um, uh, the people um, editing Vogue. The person who wrote this article for Vogue, for Vogue is either a moron or uh, or is just uh, is is in on the in on the grift with Rachel Rabbit White, who's having a much better time than most poets. Um, I can't imagine what anybody would want to... No, though, you know what? I take it back about her fans, too, because uh, this looks like a lot more fun than most poetry readings. They have a wedding cake. They have a fashion show. They have... Uh, it take place, takes place at a fucking bar, and it was noisy, so you could still buy drinks instead of having to shut up and not clink your ice while you listen to endless poems about the crisis everybody was up in arms about on Twitter six months ago when the poem was written. Yeah, uh, during the reception, White danced in a floor routine to Nina Sky's remix of You by Creep. Everyone was so wasted, I don't think anyone has a video of that. That sounds so much better than most poetry readings. All right, uh, um, uh, stupid poetry news uh, segment heading rescinded. Um, uh, I endorse the wedding. I endorse the the re-wedding. They weren't divorced, by the way. This wasn't. They weren't getting remarried. They were having another wedding after already having a wedding they plan on having many more and you know what godspeed uh rachel rabbit white and nico walker good job you've solved poetry readings uh i will i will send a memo to alice uh yeah and um the real loser here the real uh the real butt of the joke is uh is poetry is anybody else is anybody else who's doing poetry because i think they I think they really have it all figured out. They had two cakes. Why not? Hey, <laughs> why not have two cakes? Uh, and the cake, oh, I love the ambiguity of this sentence. The cake was a remake of John and Jackie Kennedy's wedding cake that read double suicide or it wasn't love. And double suicide or it wasn't love is sounds sort of like a Marilyn Manson song, but uh, but I love that the, the sentence is ambiguous and that it's not clear whether that was the that was what John and Jackie Kennedy's wedding cake said <laughs> or, or if that was just the revised version. <laughs> Great. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, uh, yes to all of this, including the existence of the fashion subgenre Cupid Core. All right. Okay. Um, good. Well, Mazel tov, Walker and white uh and um uh, uh apologies to all of you for <laughs> i don't know for all of that uh i hope this was not a totally um incoherent return to the uh solo uh podcast format i've had so many fucking interviews lately and i have a bunch more coming and there's some really good ones i mean i think i, I hope you've enjoyed the ones that have come out and, and there are definitely some good ones coming i'm still figuring out my rhythm with the show but i just really wanted to sit down and talk a little bit it's been a while, uh, and I realize I have not been pulling in as many poems uh, as I uh, have meant to because I just have not been doing these solo shows. So I wanted to wanted to get to talk about some poems I like again, and I have a bunch more I also want to talk about. I will get to sometime soon. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. You can reach me as always at sleerickets at gmail.com or on Twitter at sleerickets. 
uh, with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. 